Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. So during this year's Assembly of States Parties meeting, as is traditional, the International Criminal Court Prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda delivered her annual report on preliminary examinations. That's the bit even before investigations, well before a trial. Um, so if a state refers a situation to the court, usually this stage is really short. But if it's the prosecutor themselves deciding whether to take on a crime or not, then as you'll see in the podcast, this can take more than a decade. So we've got plenty to say on it all. Um, there's a lot of heavy criticism floating around on at least one of the decisions. But Bensuda was very clear in her presentation. She stands behind her office's analysis and their decisions. The office does not do popularity contests. It does professional work as a prosecuting office. Well, we don't do popularity contests either, but we thought that we'd at least try to disentangle who is, quote, top of the pops in preliminary examination terms this year. Sorry, it's such a bad pun, that. <laughs> not to worry. For a start, uh, we should note that there's been a bit of a process. So, uh uh, before this, the release of the entire report, it kind of came in drips and drabs. Hold on, because I hear a lot of dogs and cats in the background. Uh, first, she released that uh, she wouldn't go forward with the uh, Iraq investigation. And then she announced that she would move forward, asking the judges to open an official investigation into Nigeria and Ukraine. And then the report was published. And then we had a session at the Assembly of State Parties where we could ask some questions. Well, we're going to deal with a big one with Iraq later. Uh, clearly, for many people we've seen commenting, uh, that was the most significant decision by the Office of the Prosecutor this year not to take forward one of the preliminary examination situations and to investigate. So let's start with the decisions to move to an investigation, Nigeria and Ukraine. So, Janet, what do we know about the Nigeria investigation? Well, Nigeria has been on the go for 10 years, one of those. Um, the prosecutor now says that her office will be looking into Boko Haram, the violent rebel group in the northeast of the country. And really significantly, they're going to look at the Nigerian security forces and they're going to be looking at both war crimes and crimes against humanity. Basically, they say local trials aren't actually proceeding, so the ICC can now step in. If we look at Ukraine, the prosecutor has been uh, probing what's happened in 2014, basically after the government there said that they would give the ICC jurisdiction to do so. Now uh, the ICC, the prosecutor has said that the armed conflict in eastern Ukraine um, has uh, produced what they think yeah. probably have a strong basis to believe that are war crimes against civilians, including murder and sexual violence. And apart from those ones, um, we should also mention that there are quite a number of other preliminary examinations at different stages. Um, just from the back end, we've got the ones who are really, quote, like at the end of their rope when the office of the prosecutor says that, yes, tick, 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 they could decide to step in at any time, but they're not going to yet. And that's Colombia and Guinea. I had an interview with Santiago Vargas Nina from the Los Andes University on Colombia, which was absolutely fascinating. 
But uh, this morning I had a kind of major Mac meltdown, so my back MacBook decided to uh, chew it up and spit it out. So sorry, Santiago. So I'm just going to summarise what he had to say and make it clear these are my words, not his. Um, he basically told me Colombia has these three different investigative processes going on at the moment into the violence there some of the results of the different peace processes that we're aware of. So Colombia is basically this kind of laboratory for the ICC in engaging with the state which is doing its own thing. But because there are so many processes, it means that there's a lot for the OTP to analyse and that may be one of the main reasons why it's taking so long. And the big thing that the ICC said this year is that it's actually going to start laying out some key indicators, a kind of set of benchmarks against which a state's own efforts could be judged. Santiago mentioned like timing could be something, uh, range of the prosecutions, key decisions, which even which parts of government are involved, all as potential for these benchmarks. And Rod Rustin, who's the head of preliminary examinations at the ICC, described this as like red lines that the OTP could develop. Another situation where we're seeing the same thing is Guinea. It's been 10 years and Fatou Ben Souda is still kind of banging on the same drum, um, trying to get the authorities to mount local court cases. In response to a question from Delphine Carlins of FIDH, the human rights watchdog, Ben Souda had this to say. Guinea, as you know, has been on the preliminary examination for some time now. Um, we have uh, done everything we can, really, as an office, to encourage the Guinean authorities to um, uh, investigate and, uh, and prosecute the crimes. Um, we were able to make some progress. I think last year I reported that um, we had made some progress and uh, we knew that investigative activities were ongoing and that uh, the, the Guinean authorities were, were supposed to um, um, set up the uh, um, uh, team uh, set up the, um, what was ne needed for them to go to the trial phase to start trials. And uh, if you recall last year, or even this year, the, by June, they were supposed to um, have constructed, I believe, the uh, premises that was needed to hold the trials. And uh, you will also recall that I even made a statement uh, encour encouraging the authorities that they should go ahead um, to do that, and that if this does not, uh, conti um, this continues to happen, not starting the trials, I would definitely uh, consider um, taking uh, um, the next step in in our in our in our own processes to um, start investigations into the situation in Guinea. So again, that's one to watch with the idea that there could be some set milestones. And as Rod Raston put it, they'd be judging whether local trials are really going ahead and whether it's all genuine. So we'll watch out for that benchmarking document, which is supposed to come out sometime next year. And we should also mention some other preliminary examinations at earlier stages, not managing going to do them all. Um, but a key one is Venezuela 1, which I also talked to Santiago about and also lost. This is a significant one because the Organization of American States has referred the situation to the ICC. So it's the first time a group of states parties have done so. Here, the prosecutors just looked at some of the specific allegations related to the treatment of persons in detention. And Bensuda says that there is evidence that crimes against humanity have been committed by members of the security forces, but they're still checking to see if there have been local trials. There are other cases, of course, and I'm sorry if we're not discussing your preliminary investigation. And yes, we are looking at you, Philippines. 
But before we turn to Iraq this year, we should also mention how the Office of the Prosecutor presented the changes within the preliminary examination process this year. They stressed, uh, after a lot of criticism on preliminary examinations, also from the independent experts report that we've talked about earlier, that um, they are already doing a lot of things that the independent experts have recommended. The head of the of the section, Rod Rustin, explained that he has a team of, I think he said, 14 people, and he has now a senior investigator and a litigator and a cooperation person as well, pitching in regularly. He told us that the preliminary investigation section's work is now also to ask for evidence to be preserved, which was a big uh, center point when they spoke with the candidates for prosecutor. They say that because preliminary examinations are taking so long, a lot of evidence get lost. But Rod kind of said, no, no, we're now asking for that to be preserved. He explained that they can now take testimony at the seat of the court or before chambers and all that kind of activity that usually came at the beginning of an investigation that was now being done at the PE stage to kind of mitigate the loss of evidence over the years because of long preliminary investigations. But let's turn now to the big dominating issue for this year's um, preliminary examination. That's the Iraq decision, which is to stop Uh, examining alleged crimes by British forces there. This was was one of the longer-running issues at the court. There were alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by British forces when they invaded Iraq way back in 2003. There was an initial probe into these possible war crimes, and that was closed in 2006 by the then prosecutor, but it was reopened in 2014 with new evidence by Fatou Ben Souda, and they've been looking at allegations of willful killing, murder, torture, inhumane treatment, rape, and sexual violence. We had Carla Firstman from the University of Essex Law School on earlier. I've just been listening all the way through to that podcast, and I highly recommend listening to it again because it's full of detail. She goes through all of the details of the cases and the claims and all the politics in the UK around this and all the different procedures that have happened and the various non-prosecutions that have not taken place. And she points out... Of all the cases, the, the, the claims uh, that I have mentioned, not a single one has uh, gone independently for a prosecution. There's a few court-martials, but uh, none of them related in convictions, and uh, the matter has not, has not proceeded at all. Binsuda herself also addressed in her presentation how, in their report, the ICC team looked at whether the UK authorities could be accused of trying to shield members of the armed forces from potential investigation or prosecution. While the report sets out the numerous issues that we identified in the process, it also candidly acknowledges that ultimately we could not substantiate the allegations of shielding. And this is not a blanket endorsement, far from it. I would invite you to read our report. And some have asked why we needed evidence of shielding. We set out a twofold requirement for this. First, as prosecutor, I need to be satisfied that shielding has occurred, pursuant to my duty under Rule 48, in reaching conclusions on admissibility. But equally, we must anticipate court proceedings that follow. Specifically, under Article 18, as you know, a state may request that I defer to its proceedings. That deferral request, as long as it is substantiated, takes effect unless I revert to the pretrial chamber requesting to be authorized to proceed. 
But to do so, to request the pretrial chamber to authorize the office, I would need to substantiate why I believed the UK's domestic process had been inadequate. In other words, I would need to provide to the judges evidence in Article 18 proceedings capable of demonstrating that the domestic authorities were in fact unwilling genuinely to investigate and prosecute due to intentional efforts to shield perpetrators from criminal responsibility. As we explained in our report, we did not uncover evidence that would substantiate this assertion. And given this outcome, it would have been disingenuous, uh, disingenuous of me <laughs> in turn to have lodged an Article 15 application only to reach the Article 18 stage, knowing that we would not prevail. Nevertheless, there have been a lot of critiques of the OTP's decision, and some have even suggested that Ben Suda herself is employing quote-unquote double standards in not pursuing this investigation, and she takes great exception to that style of criticism. My record in taking difficult decisions without fear or favour is well known. Moreover, my term as prosecutor is almost up. What interests would I have in engaging in double standards and tarnishing a reputation I have built with my dedicated team that we don't do politics but apply the law vigorously and responsibly? The last I checked, I am the one who was sanctioned for doing my job by the book, and I have continued to do just that. I take great exception to facile, to facile charges of double standards, especially given who I am what I have done as prosecutor and what this office has stood for and continue to stand for as a robust champion of the Rome Statute. I recognize that my decision may be unpopular or disappointing, but is it not possible that I have acted with integrity also in this file? So we heard what Fatou Bensouda has to say about it, but we also turned to Patrick Labuda, visiting postdoctoral fellow at the University of Amsterdam Law School, to give us his take. And first of all, a bit of a breakdown of the crucial bits in the Iraq decision. The key issue that the prosecutor, the key question, that the report is her answer to this question, is whether ongoing domestic proceedings in the UK uh, made the ICC's intervention unnecessary. So we all know that under complementarity, uh, states have primacy of jurisdiction, and the ICC is a court of subsidiary jurisdiction. The, the problem for the OTP was that uh, after 10 years of domestic proceedings involving, the OTP says, the examination of thousands of allegations, uh, the UK has not prosecuted a single case. For the OTP, the, the, the question was whether this shows the fact that there are no proceedings, whether this shows that um, there is unwillingness on the part of the UK government to prosecute uh, British soldiers. And I think one thing that might be overlooked in this report is that the OTP says very clearly that the UK's initial response showed unwillingness. So they, they say very clearly that uh, in, in investigations that, w that took place back in 2004, 5, 6 showed a lack of genuine effort to carry out relevant investigations independently or impartially, and I'm quoting. 
And so, so, so I think that, that, that is an interesting finding. But the bigger question that the, the OTP faced was whether subsequent investigations launched after that early phase were also somehow tainted by a lack of genuineness. Just to summarize very briefly, the, the OTP carried out a detailed analysis of the UK's various uh, investigations, not just criminal investigations, but also various um, public inquiries, uh, civil uh, suits. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, thing is that, um, and people have been sort of drawing attention to this on Twitter, the, the, the OTP keeps saying in this report that we're concerned, we're extremely concerned, we're very concerned about a lot of things that, that we found. But at the end of the day, the OTP argues that they um, could not substantiate allegations that the UK uh, investigative and prosecutorial bodies, and here again I'm quoting, um, had engaged in shielding based on a careful scrutiny of the information before the OTP, they could not determine, uh, make this determination. So they closed the preliminary examination and they are not going to request uh, the pretrial chamber to um, validate an investigation. Okay, so that's the total decision. But were there some elements also in this decision that you also find interesting? So I think this decision, this report, uh, is is interesting for for a variety of reasons. The headline is, of course, that uh, the the OTP will not uh, open an investigation uh, into uh, crimes allegedly committed by UK nationals in, in Iraq, and and I think cynics will say that. Well, uh, we knew this was going to happen. This just kind of reinforces what we've already known about uh, international criminal justice. This is um, a system uh, that uh, sort of favors powerful states and picks on on weak states. So the cynic will say, well, actually, we we, we didn't find out anything that we didn't already know. This decision is interesting for for a variety of of sort of more technical and procedural reasons. Uh, The most important, uh, I think, finding or the most important um, result is that uh, we we know a lot more about the unwilling prong of complementarity. Uh, the you know the OTP emphasizes in in its report that this is the first time that they had to carry out such such a detailed analysis of the genuineness of domestic proceedings. And 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 the one thing that that I think bears emphasizing is that if you read the report carefully, you can really see how difficult this is. This is extremely difficult. And and the OTP really uses language throughout the report, kind of showing its powerlessness to make determinations. You know, the UK government has thrown a ton of information at them. And how does the OTP, the ICC, decide whether a state is unwilling genuinely to prosecute. Uh, so, so the report is, is really fascinating because for a lot of people, this was the reason the ICC was set up in the first place. The ICC was set up to, to prosecute where states are unwilling to prosecute. This is the raison d'etre of, of uh, the ICC, and yet we have waited 20 years almost for the OTP to finally tell us something about this key component of complementarity. 
you say this is the the OTP had real trouble establishing the genuineness of the of the investigation. What I also heard from Ben Suda's answers and the others in the OTP yesterday was this real frustration and this thing that we have to prove it to the judges as well if we if we want to bring this and we don't know if we could convince judges that this was ingenuine and also said very much that you know you couldn't it was very hard to judge if prosecutors were genuine in not being able to prosecute them because they said, you know, it's uh, to have this idea that there's a reasonable basis and to actually have a working case and a case that can be brought to the end is very difficult. And is that also reflecting on the prosecution's kind of own, um, I guess, mistakes and failures in the ICC where they thought they had a good case and then it, it ended up not going through the judges. I really felt that frustration as well, that yes, we have this idea, but we now know how difficult it is to make a case. And I guess that's what the UK prosecutors are telling them as well. I didn't hear prosecutor uh, Ben Suda's answers. Uh, so, so it's a little difficult for me to really uh, comment on what she said and, and uh, the frustration that apparently she, she expressed. But I, what I will say is that after reading this report, I, I, I find the OTP's decision very confusing. Um, and what what you just explained makes it even more confusing. Uh, I think this is why we have the OTP. The OTP is supposed to confront states over their alleged unwillingness. And the fact that the prosecutor is concerned that maybe they won't be able to prove the the UK's unwillingness. Well, that's that's why you have a court. That's why you submit a case to the pretrial chamber, and the judges are best placed to make an impartial and independent determination on whether the UK engaged in shielding. Why? You know, the prosecutor's discomfort, I, I, I sympathize. It's clear that the OTP struggled. But I, I, I'm not convinced that it is the OTP's role to make determinative findings on such contentious questions. I, th- I think it would be much, much better if the OTP submitted these allegations, these reports, to a pretrial chamber, and then a, an independent an impartial pretrial chamber uh, assesses these findings and 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 comes to you know a determination. Right now, what we have is that uh, we we have the OTP's report, and and unfortunately that that's it. Uh, we're we're never going to sort of the victims are never going to have their day in court. There's never going to be an opportunity to litigate these these issues, and and so from a procedural standpoint, I I don't understand why this preliminary examination was closed right now, other than trying to avoid these very difficult questions. And this goes, again, to bigger sort of systemic issues. Uh, th- this prosecutor's, Fatou Bensouda's, views on what the role of the OTP is, what the role of international criminal justice is more generally. And, and you know, the fact that she reached this determination, I think, speaks volumes about her vision of this of international criminal justice what is the international criminal justice project and and you know some people will agree with this i think many states will be very happy with 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 what the prosecutor decided but i think a lot of people will be will be upset because they will argue it's not the otp's role to make these kinds of determinations you should have 
gone with this to the pretrial chamber, and then the pretrial chamber, the judges get to decide uh, whether uh, these allegations are substantiated or not. Can I ask you about kind of the the bigger picture on this? There's a suggestion that this now shows any state a way of getting out of being potentially investigated when it takes them a long time to do their investigations, when they maybe mess up their investigations. I mean, is this now kind of the template for states to be able to use? So I I should clarify, when I heard of this decision, uh, I really wanted to give the Office of the Prosecutor the benefit of the doubt, because I, I had not studied the UK situation, and I personally think that the OTP should be involved in fewer situations, fewer preliminary examinations, fewer investigations. And, and you know, I've written about this. So I, I, I was sympathetic to the prosecutor's decision. After reading the report, I'm much more concerned about what has transpired. And to answer your question, yes, I am very concerned that this is a template for states wanting to obstruct international criminal justice, just like the Kenya decisions, the the Kenya investigation showed states how they can basically undermine an international investigation, can prevent the Office of the Prosecutor from launching effective investigations, and, and it led, of course, to the collapse of the Kenya cases, famously, or infamously. This report, unfortunately, provides a roadmap, a very, very detailed roadmap for states who want to stop the OTP from uh, launching investigations. And there are a lot of problems with this report. Uh, you know, again, uh, you mentioned that uh, the, the prosecutor was upset about accusations of double standards. Uh, I don't know about accusations of double double standards, but th- this report really puts the emphasis on, I think, the wrong thing. Uh, it focuses on shielding, so which is one prong of the complementarity test, as opposed to unjustified delays, which is another prong of the complementarity test. I mean, these are very technical details, but I, I understand in a way why the prosecutor said uh, we are not able to substantiate allegations of shielding by UK authorities. But in a way, you're focusing on the wrong problem. There's another prong of the complementarity test, which is the unjustified delay prong. And the prosecutor spends only 10 pages on this problem. And it reaches the completely implausible conclusion that by failing to investigate, the 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 UK uh, authorities w- were not somehow unwilling to to prosecute genuinely and there there there's very little of substance in the report on on this aspect of complementarity which is in my view a huge oversight because what it does is it ties in with sort of earlier decisions last year we had the the infamous Afghanistan decision which rewarded states for no, not cooperating with the ICC. I mean, you'll remember that, uh, that this was this heavily criticized decision by uh, the pretrial chamber that 
said essentially we're not going to open an investigation in uh, Afghanistan because there's no pro prospect of cooperation from powerful states and in particular the United States. And so a lot of people were up in arms about this because they said, well, you're rewarding non-cooperation non and you're incentivizing non-cooperation. Uh, this, this decision here, this report does the same thing, uh, although it's much more serious because it's again, it's just the office of the prosecutor reaching this determination without the judges even uh, getting involved. But but basically, the office of the prosecutor here has said the fact that the UK failed to investigate and because of its failure to investigate was not able to later investigate. This does not show somehow that there's an unjustified delay in, in bringing prosecutions or launching investigations. I mean, I, I, these are very technical questions. And, you know, we would really have to look at what the report says specifically. But my point is simply that Unfortunately, I, I agree that this report provides really a roadmap for states that, that want to obstruct international uh, criminal justice. So this total report, it's actually Ben Suda's last one. And uh, they've told us that they've reinforced the uh, preliminary examination section. They've got more people working there, really working as kind of a pre-investigation section and, and trying to kind of link preliminary examinations to what might happen in investigation stage and so on. But what would you say if you wanted to sum up what this, uh, this last report of Ben Suda says about her tenure as prosecutor? I think, in a way, uh, what we see here is that Prosecutor Bensouda's uh, term is coming to an end, and questions are being asked about the preliminary examination phase. We saw this in the independent expert review, which had a very interesting analysis of the preliminary examination phase, and, and various criticisms were raised. The, this last report, both the UK report, which of course closes a very contentious preliminary examination and the preliminary examination report that was published uh, a few days ago basically lay out, I think, uh, Pro uh, Prosecutor Bensuda's vision of what the preliminary examination phase is for. And we should be clear here that Prosecutor Bensuda inherited many of her predecessor's policies. Uh, so the preliminary examination phase became very important under Prosecutor Bensuda, but of course Prosecutor Ocampo started this whole shift. Uh, what we see is that there are serious criticisms of uh, preliminary examinations. Why are they taking so long, first of all? But I think the biggest criticism right now is that they're, they're really not accomplishing what the prosecutor wants them to accomplish. And, and the main reason for public preliminary examinations is that you put states on notice that the OTP is watching, the ICC is watching, the shadow of the court is supposed to somehow catalyze domestic prosecutions, deter crimes, incentivize peace where there's conflict. And this whole, I think, theoretical construct, beautiful as it is, is, is slowly, slowly falling apart. Uh, and we see this in this UK report, which admits, frankly, that no prosecutions have been catalyzed. It doesn't find the UK unwilling genuinely to prosecute, but at the same time, it can't really take credit for anything because the UK, again, has not prosecuted anyone. Then you look at the uh, Ukraine and the Nigeria decisions. Uh, Nigeria has been on the OTP's radar for years. Civil society organizations have been 
asking for an investigation, saying very clearly that Nigerian authorities are unwilling to prosecute. And the prosecutor has delayed her decision. But in the end, she had to acknowledge reality, which is that, indeed, the national authorities in Nigeria are not going to bring accountability uh, or not going to initiate uh, prosecutions that would meet the Rome Statute uh, complementarity test. And in a way, you know, I think this this last preliminary examination report, and and, and I really emphasize that, that, you know, these are criticisms that are being leveled at the prosecutor. And at the same time, I, you know, I, I think it's important to emphasize that it, it's not that the prosecutor somehow willfully miscalculated how preliminary examinations would unfold. I mean, the difficulty is precisely that nobody knew how this would work out in practice, whether it would work or not. And, and of course, you know, in a way it was worth trying. It's just that right now we've come to the determination that, that the preliminary examination phase is not working the way we would like it to. But, it, but just to kind of bring it back to the last uh, preliminary examination report, you, you really have a disconnect on the one hand, between these ideas, these beautiful ideas uh, behind preliminary examinations and the, the harsh reality that you find in this report. Guinea has not initiated a prosecution for almost 10 years now, and the prosecutor is r- repeating the same thing she's been repeating for the past five or six years, that uh, an investigation is imminent if the Guinean authorities do not finally start this one trial, because this is one single incident that the OTP is looking at in Guinea, you have the same problem in, in Venezuela, uh, in, in the Philippines, where, where the prosecutor is essentially admitting that we are going to have to open an investigation very soon in the next six months. In, in the Philippines, she's, she's, she's saying that essentially we would have already opened the investigation if it weren't for COVID. Nigeria and Ukraine have already been opened. You know, why are we having these multi-year preliminary examinations if at the end of the day, we open investigations anyway, and the only thing that's happened is that evidence has deteriorated in the meantime, and it's going to be much more difficult for the prosecutor to actually launch prosecutions on the basis of open investigations. And of course, the independent expert report recommended that uh, preliminary examinations be limited to two years. I don't know if this is the right way to go. Uh, it's a very controversial recommendation. But, you know, I think there's serious thinking going on within the Office of the Prosecutor and also also outside, uh, you know, among academics, uh, civil society. What what are we supposed to do with the preliminary examination phase? Because it, it, it certainly isn't delivering the results that we hope that it would. And in a way, you know, uh, the the last report from the uh, from Prosecutor Ben Suda, um, I think, encapsulates all these problems and it is going to be for her successor to decide how how you know to 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 handle this extremely sensitive aspect of the OTP's work going forward finally we should say that in her remarks Fatou Bensouda really stressed the need for resources for her office and she basically explained to states that you can um insist that we prioritize and we can but we can only prioritize up to a certain level and prioritization is never going to really remove the need for more resources while prioritization has rightly become a key term we must be clear on what we mean 
by prioritization and how it might be applied in practice. Prioritization cannot simply mean that the office should abandon its mandate and what it, when it is required by law to act because of resource constraints. Of course, we have and will continue to judicially manage resources, pace and prioritize, but no amount of responsible prioritization can address the real resource gap that the office and the court will increasingly face as new situations become ripe for investigations. While I remain sensitive to exercise my prosecutorial discretion to select and prioritize cases for investigation in line with our policy paper, the sheer scale of crimes requiring a response, new referrals by state parties, new incidents of notorious crimes, as well as unpredictable and sudden arrest and transfer of suspects in cases that had not seen activity for some time, mean that the human and financial resources of my office are perennially stretched beyond bearing. And this is not theoretical. This is already my office's painful experience. And that was also backed up with stuff from James Stewart, her deputy, and even from Rod Raston himself on like how big other teams are in state counterterrorism task forces and how tiny the preliminary examinations team is. Yes, yeah, so the, the emergency message here was right in time for the Assembly of State Parties where the states have to actually agree on the budget is, you know, please give us more resources because otherwise we might have to defund other activities. So that's also going to be a great uh, message for the next prosecutor. So on that happy note, I think this might be our last pro podcast of the year. Um, I think maybe we should try and do something kind of bright and breezy in January to, to start off with a bit of a fresh outlook. Um, but I hope in the meantime, we'll get the rest that we all desperately need. And uh, that includes my battered and bruised MacBook, which I might send off for some TLC somewhere. Uh, are you going to get some rest, Stephanie? I should. I also have some writer shift, so I'm hoping that it will be a calm Christmas and New Year's. All Dutch people, please don't do not do crazy things with fireworks. I'll have to work very, very hard. Um, but otherwise, I, I think I'm going to mostly stay at home and uh, make pancakes. See you in 2021. <laughs> I'll see you in 2021. As you can see, I'm already dressed up, ready for Christmas. Yeah, you can't see this, of course, my listeners, but Janet has a Santa hat on, which I will take a screenshot of. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. See you in 2021. See you. Bye. Bye. Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.